The fundamental point that we keep getting every time this subject is mentioned is the accusation that anyone who wants to change in any way the existing law to do with the press is in some way interfering with the free press. And everyone who wants a round of applause from the newspapers will say, we must at all costs defend our free press, no regulation of any kind. Now that is, of course, complete nonsense. There is absolutely no dispute about the freedom of the press. You won't find anyone, no matter how extreme their position, who would like to restrict the freedom of the press or stop the press carrying out investigative journalism. All that anyone wants, even somebody like me, who's probably one of the more extreme people, is that they should obey the existing law, which really isn't asking too much. And nobody's ever suggested that the existing law interferes with a free press. So there is no dispute on that. And it, it is regrettable that you sometimes get people, even the Lord Chief Justice the other day, saying we must not encroach on the free press. Well, of course we mustn't. Nobody is suggesting we should. That argument is one that the press met, and me, sorry, the press produced this argument in order to knock it down. But it's not actually something that anyone who would like to see the existing system change is, is, is suggesting we should have. And in fact, when we talk about a free press, can we really say that we have a free press when somebody sitting in New York, who's not even a British subject, can effectively dictate to the government and even dictate to the police what they should do. The power that Rupert Murdoch had, fortunately no longer, but the power he had, was the exact opposite of a free press. He controlled some 40% of the British printed press and had some 39% of the, most, the biggest television station. So when we talk about a free press, it goes both ways. If there's a proprietor who can dictate to a whole succession of big circulation newspapers the line they're going to take, it's really very difficult to argue that that is a free press. Now, we're told that some of the nastier regimes, particularly in Eastern Europe, were examples where the press would be under the control of the government and everybody would be spied on. Well, we've had a version of that here, because instead of having the Stasi, we have the people working for the news of the world. <laughs> and they were prepared to spy on anybody that took their interest with no regulation at all. And what's so extraordinary there in a democracy is if the police suspect you of very serious crime, they may be able to get permission to hack into your telephone or to bug your flat or your apartment, but they have to go and get permission. They can't just do it. If they did just do it and got caught, they'd be in very serious trouble. The newspapers seem to think, the tabloids, they could just do it without asking anybody or without bothering about any aspect of it at all. Now that is an extraordinary situation. You have an unregulated Stasi in England operating in the same way as the Stasi, probably with a smaller budget, to be fair, and fewer people, but nevertheless the same principle, and it is the principle that matters in a democracy. So what we have with the news of the world and the Murdoch press generally was effectively a subversion of democracy. The truth of the matter is that nobody dared move 
in the government, and even latterly in the police, without the approval of Mr. Murdoch. I remember meeting a very senior MP in the context of, of going there to discuss these things, and saying, it's very good of you to have me listen to what I have to say, but I realize it's a complete waste of time because you have Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Dacre, and you will never do anything of which they disapprove. And he, his reply was, well, there is an element of don't even go there. <laughs> and to me, that gave the whole thing away. I mean, it's just frightening that they did not dare, and I think that's now well-known and well-recognized, they didn't dare move without him. And then you saw, when the, the bubble burst, when the Millie Dowler incident happened, suddenly all of this poured out in the House of Commons. I don't know if anybody watched the debate, but anybody who did, it was extraordinary. One MP after another getting up and saying things which a fortnight before they would never dared say. And it was a most remarkable thing and a recognition of the degree of influence, and I would say malign influence, that Murdoch had over public life in this country. It is, as I say, a subversion of democracy. Now, the question, of course, is what to do. And we have an enormous, what should we do? We have an enormous amount of discussion about changing the law, particularly changing defamation law, what should or should not be grounds for suing for defamation, things of that kind. Endless discussion of the law, endless discussion of who should be able and what circumstances to sue for privacy and so on. And never once do you get any of these people addressing the question that really matters. And the question that really matters, in my submission, is cost. Because at the moment, if you want to sue for defamation or for breach of privacy, unless you're really quite wealthy, you can't. It's, it's simply not possible. To give you an idea, there have only been two actions for breach of privacy sort of in recent memory. One was mine in 2008, and the other one was Rio Ferdinand the other day. Well, giving you the figures from mine, you, the damages awarded were a record, 60,000 pounds. The costs paid by the news of the world were 420,000 pounds. Now that was at my cost, their own room, their problem. The, that 420,000 pounds represented 82% of my actual costs, so a much higher proportion than you would normally recover. That makes a total of 480,000 pounds. The bill from my solicitor was 510,000 pounds. Now, I knew that beforehand. I knew that even if I won, it, I would be out of pocket. But how can you have a system where those sort of sums have to be paid, and in fact you end up out of pocket, but that's another story which I'll come to. How can you have a system like that and pretend that this is a proper legal system? How can you say you live under the rule of law if more than 90% of the population cannot go to court at least on those issues. If, if it's out of the reach of people for financial reasons, you might just as well exclude them from the courts on grounds of religion or race or political belief or anything you like, any criteria you like to take. If you can't get into the court, 
for practical purposes, it's not available to you. So justice is not available to you. And that cannot be right. So the first point that you, you would discuss if you were talking about what to do about defamation and privacy, but I'm talking particularly <coughs> about privacy, first thing you say is, well, how can we set up a system which is available to people who are not in a position to risk a million pounds? And that means vast proportion of the population, because make no mistake about it, if you sue for breach of privacy, you can lose, even if you've got a very good case. There is no guarantee when you're in a court of law that you will win. You can be highly probable, highly likely to win, but no guarantee. So you're putting a million pounds at risk. Now, there was a mechanism for dealing with that up to a point called the CFA, or Conditional Fee Arrangement. If you had a strong case, you would go to a solicitor. He would take, or she would take the case on. If you won, that solicitor, your solicitor, would be able to recover extra costs from the defendant, which would cover the risk they took that they might not win. So it, it worked. And a lot, most of these people who are currently suing the news of the world, people like, for example, the Dowlers, they're on CFAs. But the CFAs didn't last because the press have been in there lobbying, as they do, against the CFAs. This is terribly unfair. If we lose, we end up with huge costs. This is terrible for the press. And, of course, get the government to agree, because the government want to do what they, the press wish them to do. And now the CFAs have been reduced to the point where solicitors almost certainly won't take them on, because the, what they call the uplift, the increase in the money that you can recover from the defendant if you win, becomes so small. Now, again I say, you cannot claim to live under the rule of law, which we do, in a proper democracy, if people don't have access to the courts. So you need some sort of body to deal at least with privacy and defamation. There are other aspects of the law where it gets more complex. And I would suggest the only way of doing, dealing with that is some form of statutory tribunal to which you have access without paying. Because unless you have access without paying, it doesn't work. It's all very well, for example, to say, well, let's move all these things to the county courts. Let's make this simpler. The truth of the matter is that most people can't afford to take the risk of litigating fully in the county court. In the small claims court, perhaps, but not the ordinary county court. So you need a statutory tribunal, and you need this, <coughs> it needs to be free. Now, the press say any form of regulation, any form of anything like a statutory tribunal, somehow inhibits the press. It interferes with the press. It hampers them. Well, only insofar as they are breaking the law, because if they're not breaking the law, they would have nothing to fear. And the idea that a tribunal to which anyone could go is somehow wrong if you simply follow that to its logical conclusion, what the press is saying is, we don't want people to be able to sue us. And of course, that was the argument against the CFAs as well. If they can't sue us, they can't annoy us. We can be allowed to do what we please. Well, again, no other section of society or business or enterprise is allowed to operate outside the law. The press seem to think, some of them, not all of them, seem to think, that they should be. But even then, you've got a distinction 
and it's a very important distinction, between what the rules are and how you enforce them. Now again, this tends to be muddled in the discussion of these matters by the press. But the actual rules, as they stand today, are not bad. The, act, the law on privacy is that you weigh on the one hand, I'm sorry for those of you who know this backwards, on the one hand you weigh somebody's Article 8 rights, his right to privacy. On the other side, somebody's right to free speech and the right to publish what they wish. And of course, these two articles in the European Convention on Human Rights, which were incorporated into the Human Rights Act, clash from time to time. Somebody's got a right to privacy, but somebody's got a right to publish it. Who succeeds? And the judges carry out this process that they call an intense focus on the facts of the individual case, weighing up these two rights, the one against the other. And they decide one way or the other. And of course, when it's very finely balanced, it's subjective. And the judge, one judge, might decide differently from another. And the finer the balance, the more probable that becomes. But nevertheless, you've got an independent person, clever person, sitting, listening to the arguments on both sides, and deciding which of these two should prevail. So that's the law on the one side, and it's, I would say, quite sensible. But then on top of that, the Press Complaints Commission, if we forget Ofcom for a moment, Press Complaints Commission have got their rules. Now, <laughs> their rules are quite comprehensive, and if they were followed, they would work fairly well. So the, the problem is that they're often not followed. A lot of you probably seen on the internet, the, um, there's a YouTube that shows some tabloid reporters being interviewed about the Press Complaints Commission, using their own trick of not letting anybody know that actually this was all being done to get them to say something they shouldn't. They were being secretly filmed. And they, they laugh openly about the PCC, which you know, is what you'd expect because it has no sanctions. But in any event, the, the rules themselves are quite good. The problem is enforcement. And all you want is, the only reason you want a statutory tribunal is that you have to have statutory means of enforcement. Without the means of enforcement, it's meaningless because people just break the rules and nothing happens. The fact that most of the press are responsible, most of them are honest, most of them wouldn't break the rules, is nothing to the point. You might just as well say that about motorists on the road. But you have to have laws to deal with the people who are not prepared to follow the rules. And you have to have sanctions to deal with people who are not prepared to follow the rules. And that's why you need a statutory, statutory tribunal. And you also need sanctions if people break the rules. And one should always separate in one's mind the rules and the making of the rules, which is one question, and the enforcement of the rules, which is another. But of course, if you want to confuse the issue, which the, a lot of the media do, you muddle these things up together so that it becomes very difficult to understand precisely what one's talking about. But as soon as you separate them, things, I think, become a lot clearer. Now, the press then say, if we don't have self-regulation, it's the end of democracy, it's the end of the free press. Dacre, uh, Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, made a speech along those lines the other day. It is complete nonsense. It's uh, 
the fact that you enforce rules which are in existence no way inhibits the free press. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the rules. But they all agreed the rules. They can't complain about the rules. They're their rules. It's just they, some of them don't follow them. Now, the press won't enforce them, can't enforce them. The PCC has no sanctions. Therefore, we need a law. And examples of this, with the Press Complaints Commission, is the great Operation Motorman, which you may have heard about. This was, um, <coughs> this was uh, they caught a private detective uh, doing things he couldn't do, getting into the driver vehicle licensing authority, uh, getting into the police computer, getting all this sort of information. And the information commissioner published a report about it. And in his second report, he was, having been asked under the Freedom of Information Act to name names effectively, he came up with a league table of the newspapers that had most used these illegal methods. And top, top of the league, with 952 transactions carried out by 58 different journalists, the Daily Mail. Hmm. Now, the Daily Mail is edited by somebody called Paul Dacre. And Paul Dacre is also the chairman of the Rules Committee of the Press Complaints Commission. <laughs> and so when I went to our select committee talking about these things, I said this was like putting the mafia in charge of the police station. It struck me as a very precise analogy. And this caused great offence. So in fact, my predecessor last week, Christopher Meyer, said that I must have been Carter Ruck's ventriloquist dummy. Well, Carter, Carter Ruck, those of you who follow this thing, a well-known law firm that uh, act for private individuals. But the point is that it is absolutely absurd to have a man in charge of the Rules Committee who's prepared to allow his journalists on an industrial scale to break the law. Because anybody who goes to a private detective to get the sort of information they were getting, registration number of a car, you get the owner, you get the address from the telephone number, or the telephone number from the address, or the telephone numbers of people's mobiles, or lists of their calls, or things from the police computer. You cannot get that information without either breaking the Data Protection Act, or worse, the, the old, it's now no longer a new one, the old Prevention of Corruption Act of 1906. Do you know that what you're doing is procuring the commission of crimes? You have criminality on a huge scale. 952 transactions. Not all of them criminal. Some of them would have been looking up the, the electoral register, things of that kind. But a high proportion would have been deeply criminal. And yet these are the people who talk about self-regulation. And the man in charge of that is, is the man in charge of the press Complaints Commission, Rules Committee. I mean, as they say, you couldn't make it up. Now, what follows from all of that, once you're prepared to indulge in criminality, particularly on that sort of scale, it's a very, very small step to corrupting or subverting the police. And you get this situation where we knew a year ago that the Mulcair papers that had been seized by the police when they arrested him. Uh, Mulcair, as you probably know, was one of the private detectives who was hacking into people's phones and used the world. There were 11,000 documents, there were six billion bags of documents sitting in Scotland Yard. 
And everybody knew they were there. And yet you've got the assistant commissioner, Mr. Yates, saying there's nothing to look at, there's no new evidence. Overlooking the fact that he'd either looked through the bags, or his people had, or they hadn't. If they hadn't looked through them, then what was in there was by definition new evidence. If they had looked through them, they knew about the criminality involving Millie Dowler and all the other things that followed from that. But the police were so frightened of Murdoch that they were not prepared to do what they needed to do. They just hoped it would go away. Fortunately, it didn't. But it only didn't go away because a lot of individuals brought actions against the news of the world and then sought what's called a Norwich Pharmacal Order, which is a sort of third party order for disclosure, against the Metropolitan Police, forcing them to disclose these documents. But it shouldn't be like that. Why is it like that? It's not because our police are inherently corrupt. It's because the influence that Murdoch had over the, that institution, as well as the government, was such that if you were a senior policeman, you would really be quite nervous about standing out against it, at least if you wanted your career to succeed. A frightening situation. I mean, if you talk about democracy, if somebody's got the government under control and the police under control, which they had, the only thing left is the judiciary. Unfortunately, the judiciary in this country won't be diverted and are not frightened of Murdoch. So they did the necessary. But it, it, is, it is truly an alarming situation. Well then, when they don't get what they want, like for example, when Mr. Justice Eady found in my favor, that outraged the tabloid press. And we had Mr. <coughs> Sorry. We had Mr. Dacre again, wrote an article saying that Edie was amoral, a full-out attack that was undoubtedly intended to intimidate the judiciary. He had one of his people then write an article the next day saying that Edie was like a cold haddock. I mean, really offensive. <laughs> and if you, if you put yourself in the position of a judge, it's one thing for somebody, somebody like me, I mean, probably most of you don't care about attacks, but a judge is a very private person away from his court, and they can't answer back. And so this full-on attack comes. Well, any, any judge is going to be a human being like the rest of us, concerned by what people think, concerned by what his neighbors think. And to attack one in that way is disgraceful and undoubtedly intended in fully intended to intimidate. And that, I think, gives one a, a flavor of what these people are prepared to do. Now, it's, uh, I mean, it's a pity that Dacre's not here to respond. But every time I get invited to a university to a debate, I always say, I'll come to the other end of England if you can get Mr. Dacre there, but never can. And Mr. Dacre, for what it's worth, had a go at me. Which more understandable. And in this same speech, and followed up with an article where he said this thing about Edie, he said about me that I was guilty of unimaginable depravity. Now, of course, it makes me immediately wonder what in Mr. Dacre's mind is ordinary depravity. <laughs> because he's clearly doesn't understand the way the world works. But it's this suggestion that he has the right 
to decide what you shall and shall not do, what is moral or immoral, and without any discussion, without any debate, without hearing both sides of the question, he's allowed, in his view, to pillory somebody in that way. Well, up to a point, I can go along with that. What I can't go along with is the breach of privacy, because that's against the law. If somebody says something unpleasant about you, provided they don't defend you, you have to accept that. But the breach of privacy, of course, is another matter. Now, another interesting thing is that the you probably know there's the Data Protection Act. Under, uh, under the Data Protection Act, Section 55, it is an offence to do certain things such as hacking into computers. Originally, it was intended that that would carry a prison sentence. The tabloids, led by Murdoch, went into number 10 and lobbied against it. Now, the Information Commissioner said that it was, I quote, he said it's a pressing need to have a custodial sentence for breaches of Section 55, and uh, saying that at the moment there was systematic and highly lucrative breaches of the law. But nothing's been done because of this power that, until very recently, murder, and to a lesser extent, people like Dacre had. So we have there an honest, open, independent information commission saying this should happen. They take no notice at all. I, in my view, completely wrong. We then get a whole lot of, I would suggest, you must judge, entirely fallacious arguments for what they do. I'll give you one or two examples. They say, for example, that if somebody is a role model, then it is, and they do something they shouldn't in their private life, it's legitimate to expose them. Now, if you actually analyze that, Let's take a professional footballer, would be a good example. A professional footballer is also a serial adulterer. So they, let's, let us suppose. So they, then if you look, they, uh, they feel then they're entitled to expose him. Well, first of all, that's not logical because his role is football. Adultery is not his role. So that one doesn't work. But the real point is this that if he's somebody who's greatly admired, there may be a tendency to follow his example. Well then, it's exactly the opposite. The last thing you want to do is expose what he does to the public, lest they follow his example. I mean, it's just so obvious. So, or to give you a concrete example, if we take, uh, I think he's called Phelps, that swimmer who won seven gold medals at one of the Olympics. Then he was caught smoking pot. And this was exposed, because he's a role model. Well, if you had a, a teenage son who was trying to make it as a swimmer, but he was in with some bad company and wanted, started smoking pot, you can't say to him, you mustn't do that, you'll never be like Phelps and win seven gold medals. Because he'll say, well, that's exactly what Phelps does. And you've got no argument left if you're a poor parent. So it's not right, unless there's a good reason to, to expose it. Sometimes it's right with their hypocrisy argument. If you've got an MP, for example, who's getting votes on the basis of his good family man, and he's a serial adulterer, well then, yes. But if you've got somebody who merely pretends to be one thing and being another, it doesn't necessarily follow. It's sometimes not in the public interest to destroy somebody if they're doing a good job. And what 
they're doing a micro-misdemeanor. It's got nothing to do with their job at all. It, if you think about it, not very rational. But the worst argument to me, and I'll move on from this now, the worst argument is it's okay to expose people's private lives because it enables us to sell newspapers, and without this, our newspaper would close. Well, that, I think, is really not too much too strong. It's a disgusting argument. It's rather like saying we should go on hanging people at Tyburn because we've got a good crowd, and if we stop the man who sells the hot dogs or whatever, we'll be out of business. It's not the right way to go. In a civilized society, you cannot torture people for the entertainment of others. And make no mistake, it is torture. The effect on the victim can be profound. There are three cases I know of of people who committed suicide because of exposures in the popular press. And all of them, with no justification whatsoever. I mean, the first two, one of them sort of rather current, which I won't mention, but the first two, there was a, a lay preacher in Wales. And he used to tell his wife that at the weekend he was going off motor rallying. What he really did was he went swinging. And of course, one day, uh, the news of the world turned up apparently to swing, and of course, then exposed him and killed himself. Then there was another case a man who was a chef, who was a Brit, but he was in northern France, lived in northern France, having separated from his wife with another lady. And he again was a swinger. And the news of the world turned up, got the pictures, and so on. And in those days, because they weren't worried about injunctions, they called him up and they said, look, and for his comment. And he said, look, I'm separated from my wife. If you publish this, I'll never see my children again. And they published it anyway, as they would. He killed himself. And that was that. Now, it matters to those people. It matters intensely. And one of the aspects you'll have to think about is are you prepared to cause that amount of pain to somebody? Because not everybody commits suicide, but they still suffer the pain. Are you prepared to cause that amount of pain to somebody simply for a little bit of light entertainment on a Sunday morning? Well, I would suggest no. And there's another aspect to it too, because there's nothing you can do. And if somebody's prepared to commit suicide, they might do something else. You might get self-help. And in any place with the rule of law and a democracy, where you get self-help. It's very dangerous. And sooner or later, somebody probably will. They'll just go down into the world, it's defunct now, but the news of the world, and do as much damage to the people there as they can. That is not inconceivable. Somebody minds enough to commit suicide, probably mind enough to commit murder. So you just don't want a society in which this sort of thing is allowed. And you really, I think, I would say you want a, a more civilized society where if somebody's done something wrong, by all means, but just because they do something that's not to your taste is not a reason to, I would submit, to expose them. So my final point, and you'll be relieved to have coming to the end, my final point is the, there is a, a gap in the law. And the gap arises in this way. If you know they're going to publish something about you that's an invasion of your privacy, and genuinely an invasion, you can go to court and ask the judge to give an injunction. And all these injunctions we read about are cases of that. They are cases of people going to court and getting an injunction. But if you don't know, you can't ask for an injunction. Obviously not, because you 
have no means of decide, no means of knowing what's going on. Now that, for example, happened in my case. They ambushed me because they knew perfectly well that had I known, I would have been able to get the injunction. And of course, it follows from that knowledge that they knew what they were doing was illegal. They knew that a judge would stop it. They didn't care as long as they could get away with it, knowing that if they can once get the story out on the street, nobody in their right mind is going to sue them for the reason I explained at the beginning. If you sue once it's been published, number one, you can't make it private again. No judge on earth can take it out of the public mind. Number two, you will get everything that you wanted to keep private repeated again in open court. And number three, you'll get a big bill into the bargain. So on any, <coughs> sorry, on any rational assessment, there is no remedy. Unless you're prepared to argue that a bill, in my case, £30,000, and more publicity, and an inability to put the wrong right, unless you're prepared to argue that those three things amount to a remedy, you have to concede that there's no remedy. Therefore, if there's no remedy, there's a gap in the law. Therefore, it should be compulsory for the newspapers to give notice. <coughs> and of course, if they give notice, you can then go to an independent judge and get an injunction. You'll only get an injunction if you can convince the judge that you're more likely than not to win your case. Now, that's quite a high barrier. And those of you who do law will know that the standard barrier is a case called American Cyanamid, where you have to show on a balance of convenience you should be given the injunction, because, particularly if you can't put it right afterwards. I'll give you a simple example. You've got a tree in your garden. I claim the right to cut it down. You say I don't have the right. You would get an injunction to stop me cutting it down, because if I did cut it down and proved later to be wrong, nobody would put it back up again. It's quite rational. Well, in the case of privacy, they made it more difficult, lobbying by the press again, section 12, 3, and so on, made it more difficult. But, you, so you have to show that you are more likely than not to win the case. But if you can, you get the injunction. But without prior notification, there is no remedy. So it cannot, it cannot be right that there's no remedy. I went to the European Court of Human Rights on that point. There's no question we won the argument. And uh, well, I'm a very good barrister. But I don't think they, get, they found in our favor, not because we were wrong, but manifestly we obviously won the argument. I think they were frightened of the media storm in England against the Europe. Look at this. They've allowed that mostly to have this prior notification. This is disgraceful. It's going to interfere with the free press. It will stop investigative journalism. Was of course, nothing of the kind. I mean, we're talking here about, essentially, you're talking about sexual matters. It's just that simple. Sexual matters and medical records, things of that kind. And no judge would ever give an injunction if it was serious investigative journalism. If any of the MPs with their expenses had gone along and said, look, I don't want this, this is private, it's my money. The judge said, no, 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 you're not going to win the case. This would be in the public interest. It should be revealed. So I think we'll win that argument again here. And I think there's half a chance now that Murdoch has been effectively in that skill. I think there's half a chance that we will get such a law in this country. Certainly, if reason prevails, we will. I know I would say that anyway, but it's, it's uh, I think, demonstrably the case. Very final point. 
is the internet. That has changed the game considerably because the, first of all, it's a sort of wild west at the moment in that they're in America or they've got a server in, I think one of the favorite ones is the, one of the, the, the sites in America, the server's in Malaysia. If you go by the right way, it's almost impossible for somebody to shut it down. That will probably get dealt with eventually. But getting stuff off the internet once it's in is very, very difficult. And we've got stuff about me removed from some of the, it's getting over 200 websites now in, all over the world. It's an expensive, time-consuming, and tiresome business. This will eventually be covered, undoubtedly, by international conventions, and there will be reciprocal enforcement acts and things of that kind. But for the time being, it's quite difficult, but it doesn't mean that we should therefore give up. Because, again, if you talk about the rule of law, you cannot, simply because there's a new technology, say, well, uh, it's too difficult, we're not going to do anything about it. The internet is subject to the law like everybody else. Even people on Twitter are subject to the law like everybody else. And it's entirely reasonable that they should <coughs> obey the law. But that said, it actually matters far less. If somebody puts something up on Twitter, it doesn't really matter unless they happen to be one of these people followed by thousands and thousands, in which case they're much more exposed to being sued anyway. It's much more like pub gossip. And the difficulty comes if it's publicized in the press. And a, a classic example of this was when, um, <laughs> when Jemima Khan, somebody said that uh, she and Jeremy Clarkson were having an affair. And she tweeted that they weren't. I think she tweeted. Then that got reproduced in the press. And then it was massive. And I, I said to her, you know, the, the reason it became massive is because you put it there. Otherwise, nobody would have taken any notice of it. It's just, you know, people say that sort of thing all the time. But all of those things are capable of being dealt with. And there may be, eventually, as I say, international conventions, to have national laws quite quickly. But the fundamental thing that would be quite easy to do is to deal with the search engines. Because if the search engine is prevented from giving the link, if that's the right word, then it doesn't really matter. If somebody's funny little site saying strange things about you, it really doesn't matter, nobody will find it. What matters is they Google your name, Google, or use any of the other search engines, then brings up this site, and then everybody goes to that site to look. And then you've got to attack the site to get it off, which is quite annoying. If you could stop Google, then it would be easy. Google don't like this. Talk to them about it. They say, we don't want to police the net. Well, there is now litigation in various countries, the result of which maybe they have to police the net. But in, to my way of thinking, if you Google your name and you get a defamatory statement on Google, as far as I'm concerned, they've published that. The fact they've got it somewhere else is nothing to the point, but that's a matter that will eventually be decided in the courts. So I guess what it all comes down to is, I'm trying, I think I'm saying that I think the rules, at least in this country, are quite acceptable. What's not happening at the moment is their enforcement. This should happen, and when the press say that enforcing the rules which already exist is somehow against a free press, or would inhibit a free press, I think it's nonsense. Thank you very much for listening to me.